Jeremiah chapter 49 this evening. We began last week um, the curses against the nations. Um, And really much of the end of Jeremiah is gonna be about that. But if you recall, one of the things before Jeremiah was even born, one of the delineations God gave to Jeremiah was he would be the prophet for all the nations. Um, Not all the prophets of Israel got that delineation of the prophet of the nations, but Jeremiah did get that. In Jeremiah 1, 5, it says, Behold, before I formed you in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Um, And so Jeremiah's scope is perhaps one of the biggest scopes of ministry of all the prophets. You know, you can talk about Isaiah and Ezekiel and others, and they, they had big scopes, but Jeremiah had very specific prophecies that were for the nations during that time, but also for the end times and the millennial kingdom and other things as well. So Jeremiah really is a great prophet, even though nobody listened to him. We love Jeremiah because he spoke the truth, even though no one listened to him. And uh, we love Jeremiah because Jesus quoted Jeremiah more than any other Old Testament prophet, even though no one in the Old Testament listened to him. I think this is great. It's almost like the Lord's just giving us a good lesson right there. Um, that the, the popular message isn't always the one that's true. And, uh, and when God's people speak the word of the Lord, sometimes they won't accept it. Uh, but we should be those who take heed and listen to the word of God. Now these nations... What's amazing about these nations that are being cursed here is that these, you know, will come to pass in fairly, you know, quick order. Uh, Once Jeremiah says that, all all of them kind of happened within, you know, 100, 200 years, every single one of these prophecies that we're going to read tonight, for the most part, would come to pass fairly quickly uh, after Jeremiah gives the prophecy. But there are a couple instances, remember, where we see dual fulfillments of Bible prophecy where there's layer upon layer. And I think we'll see a few of those perhaps tonight. And it's the fun part of Bible prophecy. It's not, don't just chalk stuff off all the time because it's, it already happened. Sometimes the Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ripple effect that throughout all of history. So uh, last week we started, you know, the curses were starting to be handed out there, um, you know, uh, starting with Moab there in chapter 48. Um, and, oh, pardon me, I should take that, take that back. Chapter 46. The curses began with Egypt. Then we saw the second group, the Philistines in chapter 47. Then we started uh, with the Moabites there in chapter 48, um, the prophecy against Moab. And we learned that Moab was, you know, on the um, Eastern side of the Jordan River in Israel. The Moabites were adjacent to the Dead Sea, if you picture on your map uh, there in Israel. And, and um, And the Moabites were descendants of Lot. Remember Lot's daughters in that cave, that creepy day, gave birth to Ammon and Moab, and they became two people groups. Uh, The incestuous uh, relationship um, resulted in two nations, the Ammonites and the Moabites. Uh, And that would be the descendants of Lot. So distant relatives of the Jews. But, um, But all that to say, we saw, you know, Moab cursed. Moab was sort of the wealthy... Um, uh, you know, but they were also really high tech. Um, they were the ones that were sort of ahead of the, the Ammonites. The Ammonites were sort of, you know, country bumpkins, backwoodsy. They were also wealthy, 
But the Ammonites were uh, no contest as far as intellectually for the Moabites. They were way out of their game in those days. So to hear this curse against the Moabites that we read about in chapter uh, 48 was shocking because they were an amazing group of people. But the Lord said, nope, Moab, you're going down. Um, but we ended last week, remember in chapter 48, the last verse of that chapter where it said, yet I will bring again the captivity of Moab in the latter days, saith the Lord, thus far is the judgment of Moab. What's this all about? Well, in the latter days, whenever we see that in the Bible, we're talking about end times of the world. Uh, eschatology, the study of end times, that's what that, that's all about. So what do the Moabs have to do with end times? We'll talk a little more about that tonight. But Moab is that region where the Jews during the tribulation period will flee to. When the Antichrist commits what Jesus and Daniel the prophet talked about, the abomination of desolation, where the Antichrist is coming world leader, will stand there in the seven year period, in the very middle part of that seven year period, three and a half years into it, he will stand in the temple in Jerusalem and demand to be worshiped. That's gonna happen in the tribulation period. But one of the things that'll happen there is the Jews will realize uh, this is not the guy. Uh, once they see him standing asking to be worshiped in the temple, they, they recognize, the Jews say, uh, no, that's not good. So they, um, they run for their lives because it'll be at that point the, the Jews will uh, be hated by the Antichrist and he will seek to make war like no other time in history, war against the Jews. And so the Jews will run for their lives. In Matthew 24, Jesus spends a lot of time talking about the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. And he said, man, if you're a, a nursing mom, pray you're not nursing during the time of running. Uh, you gotta be ready to roll. Pray that it's not on the Sabbath day, you know, when, the, when this happens, because the Jews are gonna have to flee with everything they have. And Sabbath, it's a hard time to get transportation. You know, Jesus foretold how the Jews are gonna run for their lives. And where will they run to? The modern day country called Jordan. And that region that is ancient Moab is Jordanian land today. They'll cross the border out of Israel into Jordan, into that region of Moab, which also includes that, that place called Petra um, near Basra. That'll come up tonight, uh, where the Jews are going to run and sort of hide away there. And the book of Revelation says somehow the earth will help the woman from this you know, throw this, um, you know, outpour of weaponry that the Antichrist will try to, you know, shoot toward the Jews during that time. And somehow the Lord's gonna protect them safely there. I think it's gonna be a miraculous protection from God during the tribulation period to keep the Jews from the uh, wrath of this Antichrist character. How that happens, I don't know. How, well, it says the earth is gonna help her breath. That means they're hiding in the rock city of Petra, a fortress there in Mo maybe. But do you understand modern weaponry, the ancient city of Petra doesn't really help you. Uh, I've been there. Missiles could fly in there very easily. Uh, now, if you were back in Bible times, nobody could attack Petra. Chariots were useless, even horses. I mean, to get into Petra in Bible times would have been, it was considered impenetrable. That's why it lasted. The Nabataeans were there for so long uh, and what have you. But, but what's gonna happen? Well, the earth's gonna help her. And, and that could be any number of things. The earth helped a lot of people. Remember the earth helping Moses? When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram and their you know, 250 people were rebelling against Moses, who made you in charge of us, Moses? We're better than you. And the Lord said, Moses, step aside. Moses stepped aside. And the earth opened up and swallowed all those people and then closed over and then burped. <laughs> I didn't burp, I added that part. Bet it did though. Big Steve, you know, I don't know. Maybe too much Indiana Jones there. But, but the earth, 
helped Moses. It opened up and swallowed those people. I think that's the kind of, you know, maybe perhaps the help that the, the earth is gonna give, that region's gonna give the Jews in that tribulation period. Biblically proportioned miracles uh, where they'll be protected there. Now, with all that said, that's why we sort of leave Moab with this kind of miniature blessing at the very end. I believe Jordan, the nation in modern times, is gonna actually end up being blessed along with Egypt. And there's a couple other reasons why we could talk about that. We'll do that some other time. But uh, there's a couple of nations that are gonna be surprisingly um, blessed by God, even though they were traditional enemies of Israel. And we'll see how that shakes out. But this is one of the reasons. Because in the last days, the Jews will be saved uh, running to that land called Jordan. And so there's some interesting things about that. Uh, that we see here, even in this curse that was left here. But now we move from the Moabites to the Ammonites uh, in verse one. It says, concerning the Ammonites, thus saith the Lord, hath Israel no sons? Hath he no heir? Why then doth their king inherit Gad and his people dwell in his cities? Question, quiz time, Bible question. What is Gad? Remember Gad is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the Gadites. What does Gad have to do with the Ammonites? Anybody wanna take a stab? Nobody, crickets, nothing, huh? Do you remember the two and a half tribes that wanted to stay on the east side of the Jordan River? Remember they talked to Moses and they said, they said, hey, Moses, we don't wanna to go to the promised land. We wanna stay here. We like it over here where, you know, um, this land of Moab. Uh, we like this place. And Moses was angry. Do you remember how Moses got mad and said, you guys are just trying to get out of fighting the, the Canaanites when we go into the land. And they said, we promise, we'll go, we'll send our, we'll go in and fight. But when all of that area is subdued and the, the, the people are entering into the land and, and the enemies are subdued, then we get to come back here and take that land. So they made a deal with Moses. Well, Moses is dead and goes to heaven. Joshua's in charge. They go into the land and the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, they go in and help fight the battle in Canaan. But sure enough, they go back, they hang back. They liked, they didn't like being in the promised land they liked being near the promised land. Do you remember the story now? And that's why the Gadites are mentioned here. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Did you know that of all the, the tribes of Israel that were destroyed first and kind of forgotten first, it wasn't the northern you know, 10 tribes there uh, by the Assyrians. It was actually the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe. They were the first ones to be picked off by the enemy. Um, you know, centuries before Jeremiah's time. They were long gone by this time. And there's a lesson in that. You know, the Lord wants us to possess the land, if you would. Um, he wants us to possess the possessions that he's promised to you. And he's given you, you know, I promise you, I'll give you this. What are the promises of God's word? There's thousands of them. Um, but if you look at all the promises, how many, how many of those promises have you said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna receive that promise as, as the Lord promised it, I'm gonna accept it. But I wonder how many of us say, no, I kind of like it right here. You know, uh, if you seek me, you will find me. That's a promise of the Lord. Well, you know, Lord, I, I don't really have time to seek you. And so I, I, I'm just gonna be busy about my career and seeking wealth and prosperity and doing all this. So I don't really have time to see. Well, the Lord says, okay, you're not possessing the possessions, possessions that I've promised to you. Yeah, I don't really care about that, Lord, as long as I'm successful in my career. And then who's the first one picked off? 
when trouble comes. It's the person who hung back and didn't possess the promises that God gave them. There's a great lesson from the Gadites and the Reubenites and the half tribe of Manasseh that we should do what God wants us to do. Go into the land of promise is the idea there. Well, that's why Gad's mentioned here. They, they are long forgotten by this way a time. Why hath the, uh, doth their king inherit Gad and his people? They'd all been assimilated and long gone by that time. Well, verse two. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will cause an alarm of war to be heard in Rabbah of the Ammonites. And it shall be a desolate heap, and her daughters shall be burned with fire. Then shall Israel be heir unto them that were his heirs, saith the Lord. So we're talking about the Ammonites. Remember, the, uh, Moab is down by the Dead Sea. Ammon's just north of the Moabites. The Ammonites and the Moabites settled close to each other. Um, and if you look at a map today and you see the city of Ammon, that's where the Ammonites lived. And that name stuck for a millennia now. It's an amazing millennia. Well, um, it says, verse three, howl, O Heshbon, for Ai is spoiled. That's a different city, by the way. Ai, a different city uh, that's in that region, not the city of Ai that's near Jericho. But um, they said, howl, Heshbon, for Ai is spoiled. Cry, ye daughters of Rabbah, gird you with sackcloth, lament and run to and fro by the hedges, for their king shall go into captivity and his priests and his princes together. Wherefore gloriest thou in the valleys, thy flowing valley, O backsliding daughter, that trusted in her treasures, saying, who shall come to me? Behold, I will bring a fear upon thee, saith the Lord God of hosts, from all those that be about thee, and you shall be driven out every man right forth, and none shall gather up him that wandereth. And afterward, I will bring again the captivity of the children of, Am, uh, of Ammon, saith the Lord. Interesting, it says in verse uh, four, their main problem, they were a backsliding daughter that trusted in her treasures. One of the things you and I can learn from these cursed nations of Jeremiah's last part of his book is what not to do. Why were these people so uh, ready for destruction? The Lord calls them out on each one of them. He says, well, the uh, Ammonites, they trusted in their treasures. They had, they had a lot of possessions, thus they were trustful. But did you notice their wealth didn't do anything for them? Uh, it says that they would, verse three, run to and fro around the hedges. Um, howl, verse three, it says, howling and running to and fro. What is that basically sounding like? Panic. The Ammonites are gonna run in panic and their wealth didn't help them. Sometimes I think you and I get little tiny snapshots, nothing even close to the way it could be, but of what it could be. You know, we, we have our wealth in the Portland area and really in the United States, we, we have our things that we trust in. Man, we have electricity. That's good. We don't, none of us think about what happens with the electricity going off, you know. And, and you know, a lot, a lot of times it's just over an hour or just a second or whatever. But many of you just got your, a bunch of Athey Kriegers got their electricity like yesterday. It's been a long haul for a lot of you. And, you know, um, and, and, and no internet. What are we going to do without internet? It's like, howl ye, Athey Kriegers. Run to and fro. Why? Because there's no internet. You know, a lot of your houses, you got these smart homes and nothing works. 
Suddenly you're Abraham Lincoln reading the, you know, the Bible by your fireplace or something. If you have some logs outside, hopefully. Um, you did because they fell on your roof. Um, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, to watch us go through just, just minimal little tastes of how things really could be. Well, Brett, now you're scaring us. You mean that's just a little taste? Well, I think if you really are logical, um, you can see how things could go really bad really fast. Brett, are you saying we should be preppers? Bunkers and store up food and guns and all that stuff? I'm not saying that uh, because I'm not sure that's, that's the answer. You can do whatever you want with that. But, but more importantly, I think one of the things we shouldn't do is put our trust in stuff like that. You know, I think that uh, a lot of times we put our trust in our wealth and all the things we have. And, and you can almost forget because we don't have events like ice storms that shut down our power that often. So we really do kind of go glibly and naively along. But man, if things went really bad in, on a big scale, you know, uh, this is where the, the people that trust in the Lord and the people that trust in their you know, electricity and power and all this, it's gonna separate them out pretty clearly. You know, I mean, uh, it's amazing how people kind of freak out. And that's what the Lord's telling these nations. You're gonna see this with all the nations. You guys are gonna freak out because you lived large. You were wealthy and you were strong and mighty and you had it all going on. Everything was going on business as usual until the Babylonians come and crush you. And you're running and you're, can't, you can't, remember last week we saw that horrifying picture of a father who was running and his young child was there, but he knew there was no way to save him. He had to run and just leave his child there for the Babylonians to just run over. Like it was a horrible, horrible scene. Why would the Lord give us this kind of imagery and what does it have to do with us today? Well, I think we're, we're really being reminded to not put our trust in the things these people put their trust in. And notice it said they, they the people of Ammon, uh, trusted in their riches or their treasures, verse four. It reminds me of what Paul told young Timothy in his ministry. He said this in 1 Timothy 6, 11. Pardon me, 1 Timothy 6, 17. It says, charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. What a good thing for us to remember, not to put our trust in uncertain riches. Again, I think that ice storm was just a reminder that we're not as in control as we think we are and things can get, they could get pretty bad pretty fast if things turned bad enough. Well, that sounds pretty doom and groove. You need to be more positive, Brett. The power of positive thinking, that's what we need. Well, you can work on that when your electricity's out next time. That, uh, I'll still be working on the wiring power. Like I, I hope that that's what comes back. Um, I've actually believed in the power of negative thinking. What's that, Brett? Well, um, the power of negative thinking is really kind of important and to think that what, what, what could go wrong and what am I gonna do when things go really, really wrong? Because the power of positive thinking, I think oftentimes leaves you like, it's all gonna be great and I'm gonna live out my dreams, but it never really happens. So what about the negative? Well, my dreams could be shattered and uh, we could be without power for 10 days. <laughs> and, and what are you gonna do there? And, uh, and I'm not talking about prepping, I'm talking about trusting. Where do you put your trust? Do you trust the Lord? And do you get your heart and your mind ready? I do wonder sometimes if we've been so blessed in so many ways that we don't even know what we would do if, if our faith was challenged 
in a, in a, in a way that like could cost you. Like what if Christian persecution suddenly hit really hard in America? It could happen by the way. We're starting to see it a little bit. Nothing like, you know, the Holocaust or nothing like the Inquisition or we haven't seen anything like that, but people are talking like that. There's people that are talking like it'd be great to kill Christians. We're the, the Christians are the ones holding everything back. And there's some real hostile language being used against people of faith these days. What, what happens when that happens? I hope you're mindful of the fact that you might have to make a decision and you do need to be ready for troubling times. And that is your faith, that you be immovable. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And that's what I hope this does. As we study this section of the word, we get to hear the word and hopefully your faith will be strengthened and built up rather than trusting in the things these people were trusting. And so the Ammonites go down as trusting in their riches, it says there. Verse seven, we move on to the next group of people, the Edomites. Uh, verse seven talks about Edom. Now, who were the people of Edom? They were the descendants of Esau. And they also were from that region of the, of the world, you know, Southern Jordan and that re region of uh, modern day Jordan. Um, the descendants of Edah, Esau, you know, Esau means red, Edom, the red Edomites. It's interesting when you go to that region of the world, everything's red because that sandstone, like when you go to Petra and the sun is going down, everything just turns bright red. It's just a beautiful scene. It's the land of red. And that's what Edom is all about. So before we get into this, it's helpful to remember who was Esau. Esau was the guy that was the, the uh, brother of Jacob, who would be one of the, the, you know, the father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob's 12 sons became Israel. So that's where it split off, the Edomites and the Israelites. You know, Esau was the uh, Edomites, uh, Ishmael, and, and Jacob would be the Israelites. So what's the big deal with that? Well, Esau is always a type or a picture of, in the Bible, the, the carnal flesh. You know, the warring uh, against the spirit, your flesh and your spirit. Esau is a type of that. And that's one of the reasons why, by the way, in Romans chapter nine, God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Esau was the guy that was all about fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Uh, carnality is the idea. So let's see what happens to these people because the apple doesn't fall that far from the tree. It says, verse seven, concerning Edom, thus saith the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Is counsel perished from the prudent? Is their wisdom vanished? Flee ye, turn back, dwell deep, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him the time that I will visit him. If the grape gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, they will destroy till they have enough. But I have made Esau bare, I have uncovered his secret places, and he shall not be able to hide himself. His seed is spoiled, and his brethren and his neighbors, and he is not. Leave thy fatherless children, and I will preserve them alive, and let thy widows trust in me. Interesting, isn't it, that the, the, um, the men of Esau, I mean, Esau is a picture of a man's man, you know, but they're all gonna run and flee and die. And the Lord says, leave the widows and leave the children. And why? Because the Lord says, I will take care of them. I will preserve them alive and let thy widows trust in me. Isn't that something? In the midst of all this calamity for the men of, of, um, of the Edomites, the Lord says, I'm still gonna care about the widows 
and the orphans. That's the heart of the Lord. By the way, that's the heart of pure, undefiled religion. Did you know that? What is good religion? There's bad religion. But good religion is this. In fact, the Bible tells us what it is. James chapter one, verse 27, it says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's real religion right there. Fake religion is liturgies and fancy robes and smoking censers and pointy hats and you know, uh, legalism and just, there's a lot of weird religion, but true undefiled religion is this, to care for the fatherless, that's the orphan and the widow and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's what the Bible says. That's what we're supposed to do. And that's what God always does. He cares for those who cannot care for themselves. Isn't it funny that people often wrongly try to quote God helps those who help themselves. That's what the good book says. Well, that's not what the good book says. The good book doesn't say that. The good book actually teaches the opposite. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And guess what? You and I are included with that because we cannot help ourselves in our sinful condition, can we? We're helpless when it comes to you saving yourself from your sins. So I'm really glad that that's not true. And don't say that anymore. God helps those who help themselves. And also don't say cleanliness is next to godliness. That's not in the Bible either. There's all kinds of things people attribute to the Bible that are just a bunch of stupid sayings that people say. Um, But all that to say, I love that the Lord, even in the midst of this, he cares for the orphan and the widow there in verse 11. Verse 12, for thus saith the Lord, behold, they whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunken. And art thou he that shall altogether go unpunished? Thou shalt not go unpunished, but thou shalt surely drink of it. People think they can drink it and get away with it, but you're gonna, you're gonna get it. That's what the Lord's saying. For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse. And all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. I have heard a rumor from the Lord, an ambassador is sent unto the heathen, saying, gather ye together and come against her and rise up to the battle. For lo, I will make thee small among the heathen and despised among men. Thy terribleness hath deceived thee and the pride of thine heart. O thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, that holdest the height of the hill, though thou shouldest make thy nest as high as the eagle, I will bring thee down from thence, saith the Lord. Also Edom shall be a desolation. Every one that goes by it shall be astonished and shall hiss at the plagues thereof. Every every time you see that word hiss, people hissing, it means whistling in astonishment. Remember that. That's what they're doing. They're going, wow, Edom's really toast. Um, And they're shocked by that. You know, Edom, a type of carnal flesh, um, I think is probably one of the closer examples of the United States of America. Though you think you're high up like the eagle, you're gonna be brought very low. Just as our, you know, uh, symbol of the eagle in the United States. And and though we sing, we're proud to be Americans. And then all of a sudden it says, um, man, the terribleness has deceived thee and the pride of thine heart, verse 16. Uh, you that dwell in the clefts of the rock, thinking you're safe in your rocks. But the Lord says, I see all that and I'm gonna bring you guys down and people will be astonished. And verse 18, as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, no man shall abide there, neither shall a son of man dwell in it. 
Now, we mention here this name uh, Basra uh, in verse um, 13 again, and we bump into that a lot, and it's that region of you know, uh, east side of the Jordan River, uh, you know, by the Negev Desert, the Dead Sea. And then if you look on a map, just to the right of that in Jordan, um, that region called Basra. What's the big deal about Basra? Well, there's an interesting little prophecy that talks about Jesus in his second coming, how he's gonna come to the Valley of Armageddon, ultimately the, the, the battle of Armageddon there. But he's gonna come uh, from Basra. Now, why will Jesus go to Basra and then to the Valley of Armageddon? What's the deal with all that? We know that Christ, when he returns, he's gonna return with 10,000 of his saints. He's gonna put his foot on the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives is gonna split in half and the water's gonna come out of the Mount Zion and it's gonna bring fresh water down to the Dead Sea. Like there's a bunch of stuff that's gonna happen. But what's this part about Jesus coming from Basra then going to the Valley of Armageddon? And why is his vesture dipped in what? Anybody remember? blood or, or metaphorically the wine uh, of the crushed grapes. But the idea is blood. He's gonna have his vesture dipped in blood. And we see other scriptures that say that literally. So what's the deal with that? Well, Basra is that region near what is called Petra. Some people try to say it's the same. I'm not sure it's the same place, but I do believe it's that region where the Jews will flee. We talked about it at the beginning of our study. And I believe even as we return with Christ, those that have been raptured, the church of Jesus Christ, we come back. That's who the 10,000s of the saints are. Those that have passed or been raptured uh, before all this comes down, Jesus is gonna return with 10,000s of his saints. The word 10,000s means you know, millions of people coming with him. Um, but he's gonna stop by and pick up a group of people. And I believe that's where the Lord's gonna deliver the Jews from the fierce wrath of the Antichrist and he will make his way to Basra in that region, pick up the Jews, wipe out those that are trying to kill the Jews and the Lord somehow is holding off those enemies. And he will then come uh, already dipped in blood, if you would, at that point, because of the battle that ensues and then to the Valley of Armageddon where he'll clean up. And then he rules and reigns and we live happily ever after. That's, that's a nutshell version of it. Um, so all this to say, Basra, if you come into that place, you'll kind of see how, um, you know, the Bible sort of foretells that. And, and it's not super um, overt in the way that the Bible actually handles this idea of Basra. Um, but the idea, you know, comes from several places. But, um, you know, Micah the prophet talks about how, um, you know, Basra will be uh, that place. Let me just read you from Micah chapter two, verses 12 and 13. This is one of those places that talks about this. Um, prophetically, Micah the prophet says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will gather the remnant of Israel and I'll put them together as sheep of Basra, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men, the breaker. Who's the breaker? What an interesting name. And that's, I believe, one of the names given to the returning Christ, the Messiah. He's called the breaker. Uh, the breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it for their king shall pass before them and the Lord is on the head of them. Um, what's gonna happen from Basra? The breaker, the king's gonna come and gather the Jews and then he's gonna go from there to the Valley of Armageddon. So I'm just giving you some of the high points. There's a bunch of other passages we could talk about, but you can just look it up, Basra and the last days and Christ's return and you'll see uh, the Bible has some mysterious things about that. It's kind of cool. So for, uh, for these people's sake, uh, you know, you got the, the people of, um, 
of Edom uh, going down. Um, but it goes on and um, uh, it says, where did we leave off? Let's see. 19? Huh? Yes, thank you. That's right. Um, did we read 18? As in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I didn't talk about that. Um, oftentimes, Sodom and Gomorrah is the mark. It says there, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighbor cities thereof, saith the Lord, no man shall abide there, neither shall the Son of Man dwell in it. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah is kind of the mark and the Bible uses it in the Old Testament. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, you're going down. Jesus even did that. Um, do, does anybody remember the name of the towns that Jesus said, it's gonna be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you guys? Anybody? Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Remember those cities that Jesus did all those miracles in and they didn't believe in him? So he says, it's better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you guys. Like that would be a horrible thing to hear about your town. Uh, and, and it's interesting because Capernaum still is, is the most beautiful place in all of Israel, in my opinion, but it still sits in desolation because of the curse that Jesus put on it. It's just a ruin. That's what we go see when we go to this beautiful seashore place on the, on the Sea of Galilee, palm trees, beautiful, still totally desolate, Capernaum, just like Jesus said. Well, verse 19, behold, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan against the habitation of the strong, but I will suddenly make him to run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? And who will appoint, them, uh, appoint me the time? And who is that shepherd that will stand before me? Therefore hear the counsel of the Lord that he hath taken against Edom and his purposes that he hath purposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their habitations desolate with them. The earth is moved at the noise of their fall. At the cry, the noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come up and fly as the eagle and spread his wings over Basra. And at that day shall the heart depart. The mighty men of Edom be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. So there you have it. Uh, more about uh, the end of Edom and, and uh, the future of Basra. And so in verse 23, now we come to the next people group. Uh, uh, we move from the Edomites, which is the fourth group, now the fifth group, um, uh, 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 Damascus is the group we're looking at here. Um, pardon me, what number are we on? I need to recount these here. All right, one, two, three, carry the one, four, five. Oh, this is number six, Damascus. Does anybody know, does Damascus have much of a future? It's an interesting question. Before we read this about Damascus, one of the things that's interesting about Damascus is that Damascus in Syria today, just on the northern border of Israel, if you just go like, you know, just 50 miles north of, of the border, border there in Israel, you end up in Damascus. Right now, Damascus is a war-torn city with all kinds of nations there. The Russians are there, the Iranians are there, and just about everybody else is there. Um, but it's a total mess. Um, and Damascus is a hotbed with this whole Syrian civil war and the Iranians shooting missiles at Israel and wanting to do that and destroying Israel. That's their goal. But Damascus is this key player. But interestingly enough, did you know Damascus is the oldest city in the world? Now I say that, some of you might say, I, I take a contest with that. Well, let me say it this way. Um, Damascus 
is the oldest city that has never been uninhabited. So there's other cities, you might be able to argue this older, but they became uninhabited at one point or another. And maybe somebody rebuilt another city on top of it later. Um, but Damascus is the longest ongoing inhabited city. It's been destroyed in war, but people just kept living there. And the reason that's important is because of the prophecy Isaiah chapter 17. And Isaiah 17, which we went over a few months ago when we were in the book of Isaiah, was that Damascus would become a ruinous heap, never to be inhabited again. And the idea there is that's interesting is that prophecy has not yet come to pass. And some might say, well, that's just the Bible making a mistake. No, I believe that's the Bible saying in the last days, one of the marks of the last days is Damascus will be destroyed and it never has been in its history. And, uh, and there might be even hints of that uh, in this little thing about the, the place of Damasca, Damascus. Remember there were the Assyrians and the Syrians. Um, today we only have the Syrians. Um, but the Syrians were the group that uh, would be spoken of here as far as Damascus goes. So concerning Damascus, Hemat is confounded and Arpad for they have heard evil tidings. They are faint-hearted, there is sorrow. On the sea, it cannot be quiet. Damascus is waxed feeble and turned herself to flee. And fear hath seized on her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as a woman in travail. How the city of praise not left, the city of my joy. Therefore her young men shall fall in her streets and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus and shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. Okay, so um, it's going down and this is probably Jer Jeremiah giving a more immediate prophecy where Isaiah gives the longer term prophecy about the destruction in the future of Damascus. But this one doesn't claim that it would be destroyed where nobody had ever lived there ever again. That's the difference. Now, this one is interesting because it uses this uh, phrase here at the end of verse 27. The, it says, it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. You have to understand, the palaces of Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad was a uh, series of leaders um, you might say like the Ben-Hadadians, <laughs> you know, the guys that were the family of Ben-Hadad. They were the most magnificent kings during the eighth uh, and ninth century of, uh, of, of that city of Damascus. Um, and that would have freaked them out because they were glorying. Ben-Hadad, would you say that word to the Syrian there at that time, that was their glory days, saying the, court, the palaces of Ben-Hadad are going down. The people would have said, no way. You can't beat what we have, the Syrians. And um, that would have hit him right where it hurt, where, you know, thinking glory days. It'd be almost like something as crazy as like if we heard that our Navy SEALs and Green Beret and Army Ranger and all of those guys all got destroyed suddenly. You'd say, no way, not our SEALs, not our Green Beret, not our, you know, Army Rangers. You know, we have uh, guys that we kind of think are, you know, unstoppable here in America, but, but it was sort of like that for the Bible to say to these people, Ben had that, that would have said, they would have said no way, kind of their glory days. So it's interesting, that's where they probably were resting their trust. Remember, we've been talking about, you know, who they trust in and we talked about the Ammonites trusted in their uh, treasures. Um, the Edomites trusted in their pride of their heart um, 
uh, and the Damascus people were trusting in their palaces and their glory days is kind of the idea there. Now we move on to the seventh of groups gonna be destroyed, verse 28, concerning Kedar and concerning the key kingdoms of Hatzor. Um, who's Kedar and Hatzor? Well, this could be confusing, but Hatzor is a city in Israel, but it's also a group people group in what is today uh, the region of Saudi Arabia, along with Kedar is Saudi Arabia. So we, we might think in our mind's eye here, these are the curses against that region during Jeremiah's time. If you go you know, south, uh, southeast of Israel, um, you've got Saudi Arabia, which is Kedar and the kingdoms of Hatzor. Um, and they were famous for being um, uh, tent dwellers, uh, sort of nomadic people, uh, almost like Bedouins, but they were not a weak, feeble people. They were known for archery along with another group that's coming up, the Elamites, but we'll talk about them in a second. But there were archers, and these are people that could ride horses and shoot a bow, and they did it quite effectively. And it would often cause, uh, time cause great terror uh, if you were gonna be attacked by these people from Kedar, because these guys could just ride swiftly on their horse and shoot you as they were riding by. Um, so concerning the uh, Kedar and concerning the kingdoms of Hatzor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall smite. Thus saith the Lord, arise ye, go up to Kedar and spoil the men of the east. Their tents and their flocks shall they take away. They shall take to themselves their curtains that's, um, and, and all their vessels and their camels and they shall cry unto them fear on every side. So picture these tent dwellers with their camels and their fancy tapestries and curtains in their, in their tents. They were worth a lot of money, uh, but they'd be all be wiped out. And their things they trusted and their camels and what have you, totally gone. Flee, verse 30, get you uh, far off. Dwell deep, O ye inhabitants of Hatzor, saith the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, hath taken counsel against you and hath conceived a purpose against you. Arise, get you up unto wealth, the wealthy nation that dwelleth without care, saith the Lord, which have neither gates nor bars, which dwell alone. And their camels shall be a booty and the multitude of their cattle a spoil. And I will scatter into the winds them that are in the utmost corners. And I will bring their calamity from all sides thereof, saith the Lord, and hot source shall be a dwelling for dragons and a desolation forever. There, no man abide there, nor any son of man dwell in it. Um, so interesting mention of this, and much, much of this region, even to this day, is nobody lives there, because it's just hot, dry, sandy desert, and only uh, you know lizards and what have you live there. Like, like said here, the dragons that live there in that region. Um, it's almost like the Lord says, go up to these people, hot zor. Go up and hang out with the people that don't have walled cities uh, with their camels and their tents because they're going down. It's like sarcasm being used there. So the people of Saudi Arabia were gonna go down and they did. Nebuchadnezzar crushed these people and they ceased to exist. Now he goes uh, to group number eight, the Elamites. Does anybody know who the Elamites are today? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> Iran, right? Okay, Elamites became sort of Persia and the men of Persia are the Iranians, okay? Just kind of an interesting thing. So let's see what happens to the ancient Iranians in that region of the world. 
Well, it says the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, saying, um, thus saith the Lord of hosts, behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the chief of their might. I told you these people were also famous for their archery and their bows. Uh, the Lord says, I'm gonna break your bow. Verse 36, upon Elam will I bring the four winds from the four uh, uh, quarters of heaven and will scatter them toward all those winds. And there shall be no nation whither the outcasts of Elam shall not come. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies. And before them that seek their life, I will bring evil upon them, even my fierce anger, saith the Lord. And I will send a sword after them till I have consumed them. And I will set my throne in Elam, and I will destroy from thence the king of the princes, saith the Lord. But it shall come to pass in the latter days that I will bring again the captivity of Elam, saith the Lord. So interesting, you know, the Iranians were scattered, ancient, the Elamites, uh, but they would regroup and they would become a nation again. Now, the end times future for Elam is very different than that of Jordan and Egypt. I told you that the Lord has kind of a positive thing to say about Jordanians in the very end of things. But Iran is gonna be one of those nations that goes against Israel in the Ezekiel 38, uh, and 39 prophecy, or otherwise known as the Gog-Magog invasion. The Iranians are gonna be very involved with in that. And we see them posturing today, saying they wanna wipe out Israel, they wanna wipe Israel off the map, the, the Iranians. Now, most of the Iranian people, um, from what I'm told from Christians who were once trying to survive in, in Iran, they tell me a lot of the people that live there, they're not the fundamentalist Shiite Muslims that you know the leadership of that nation really is. Um, a lot of them are very much oppressed. We need to be praying for people in Iran and especially for those that are Christians. Uh, and there, there's a revival going on in Iran uh, of people being Christians, but the nation gets more and more radicalized because of its leaders. Back in 79, the Islamic revolution, remember the whole Shah of Iran and the uh, hostage crisis? Um, basically their leaders were all kind of crazy from that point on. Uh, and uh, and Rouhani's no exception. Ahmadinejad before him, nuts. Um, uh, a nut job is what I used to call him uh, because he would just say crazy stuff. The Holocaust never happened, it was fake and Israel needs to be blown off the map and the Jews need to all die. Like he said stuff, this is a president of a modern country saying crazy, crazy stuff. And uh, Rouhani and the others are the same. But we, we, uh, we see the Bible says that's, that's the attitude they'll have in the last days. Well, that, that's, uh, that's gonna be a tough day for Elam uh, when that all happens. Now we come to Babylon. Do you think the Lord has something to say about Babylon? I have a question for you before we get into this. And by the way, we get, this is a long one. Let's see how far we can get tonight. Um, but uh, I, want, I want you to ask yourself, God says, I'm gonna use Babylon to be the sword in my hand to judge Israel. And did that happen? Yes. Uh, the Babylonians judged Israel and it was God saying, that's my sword, the Babylonians. Why then would the Lord punish the Babylonians for doing that? If he said, I'm gonna use the Babylonians to be the, the paddle or the sword to correct my people. Now that he didn't use Babylon to utterly destroy the people, but to correct them and reset Israel. Um, why then would the Lord say, but because you did that, I'm gonna destroy you. I think we get the answer coming up here. See if you can find it when we cross it. Well, the Babylonians, verse one, this is um, number, um, number nine. 
of, of the nations. The word of the Lord spake against Babylon, against the land of Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare ye among the nations and publish and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not, saying Babylon is taken, Bel is confounded, Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded, her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north there cometh up a nation against her which shall make her land desolate and none shall dwell therein and they shall remove and they shall depart both, both man and beast. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, children and, and of Israel shall come, they, sh they and the children of Judah together going and weeping, uh, they shall go and seek the Lord their God. So what nation is this being talked about that's gonna come and subdue Babylon? Anybody? Trick question. Two, two nations, but it's actually several nations, but the two major ones are the Medes and the Persians, um, right? The Lord would use them uh, years after the people of Israel were in, in Babylon in captivity. This would happen when, remember, Darius and Cyrus would come and take Babylon. This is the prophecy. A lot of this is talking about that moment. But what is it, the, the, interestingly, in verse four, it says that the people of Israel would go and weep and they shall go and seek the Lord their God. What is it that would make the people finally really weep and seek the Lord? Isn't it interesting that seeing it in the destruction of Babylon is what made them finally weep and seek the Lord? I wonder if it took this long for them to truly be broken to where they would see real correction. In fact, check this out, verse five. Um, the Jews, um, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant Shall that, that shall not be forgotten. What's this saying? This is where, when the Lord destroys Babylon by the Medes and the Persians, the Jews would change their worldview a lot. And they said, weeping, which way to Zion? Get us back to Zion. Take me back to Zion. And, and that's, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, they'd come back from the captivity and rebuild and restore Jerusalem and start living there again. But did you see what they said? They said, Lord, we will make a perpetual covenant between you and us. The idea is that no longer are we gonna get like we were before, tangled up with these other gods and other deities. Now I've got a big trick question for you. You guys ready for this trick question? That promise that we see here in verse seven, come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. The idea is that we will not worship other pagan gods do you think the Jews are gonna keep that covenant between them and God? Well, normally you and I would have to say, no, these people, especially the book of Jeremiah, how many promises would we hear? Lord, we promise that we're gonna keep you no more. And then 10 seconds later, they're worshiping other gods. So it's really easy to be cynical and stuff like this. But as it turns out, did you know that from the time of the Israeli captivity and when they were released, Israel mostly, largely never did fall into idolatry ever again in history. Like this is kind of an amazing thing because we've seen them fall so many times. Well, Brett, I see Israelis worshiping idols like, you know, uh, we do, you know, yeah, like that. But, but as far as, you know, Baal and Dagon and Ashtoreth and all these others, they did make a covenant. And, and the Jews to this day are extremely sensitive when it comes to making images and idols and stuff like that. During the time of um, Jesus, well, you know, um, well, it was during the Roman time when Pilate, Pontius Pilate first came to rule in Judea. That'd be like the booby prize for a Roman leader. 
uh, to have to go down to Judea because all those you know, Jews that were so hard to deal with. That, that was kind of the way they looked at it. So Pontius Pilate was there. And the, one of the first things we did, and we know this from history, this isn't in the Bible, this is history. That when Pilate actually first governed that region, he wanted to do a show of force because he heard about these pesky Jews that were always stirring up trouble, but he had no idea the political climate. So here's what Pilate did. He marched his Roman soldiers into Jerusalem and they were on their big horses and they were carrying their golden standards with eagles and lions that were golden uh, carvings that were beautiful, Roman you know, artwork or whatever. And, um, and the Jews, they, they were so incensed by the Romans bringing their golden gods into the Jerusalem city that a bunch of the old men came out in Jerusalem and they laid their necks on the ground and said, chop off our heads. That's what they said. They said, kill us. Why? Pontius Pilate had a problem. He's got all these old Jews saying, laying their necks on the ground saying, okay, get your son, kill us all. Why? Because they were bringing gold idols. It wasn't that the Romans were marching in that they cared about. It was that they were bringing graven images into Jerusalem. That's how seriously they took that. They literally said, kill us all. Well, uh, there was some bloodshed and it was bad. And that made Pontius Pilate really unpopular and it became nothing but trouble. Um, but that's a whole nother story in history. But my point is this, uh, the Jews are very sensitive about idolatry because of their past. And right here is where they make this promise saying, we will not go back to that. And really they wouldn't, they, they would keep that promise. They wouldn't go back to idolatry. Kind of interesting, who would have thought? What's it gonna take for us to repent for real this time? You know what I mean? I mean, it, it really, it was a tragedy to see the Jews had to take 70 years in captivity under the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians to where they finally were released where they said, okay, this time we're gonna follow the Lord. Well, continuing on, verse six, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have caused them to go astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill and for, forgotten their resting place. We looked at that verse on Sunday. And all that found them have devoured them. And their adversary said, we offend not because they have sinned against the Lord. The word Lord there is Jehovah. That's the God of the Jews. The habitation of justice, even the Lord, the hope of their fathers, remove out of the midst of Babylon and go forth out of the land of Chaldeans and be as the he goats before the flocks. Isn't it amazing that a lot of these secular, I should say secular or pagans, uh, recognize the Jews' mistakes more than the Jews did. You guys forsook your God, the God of Israel, Jehovah. And uh, remember the guy that told that to Jeremiah said, man, you guys made a mistake. You should have got rid of those idols. And Jeremiah's like, remember I said, no, duh. Jeremiah's been saying that for years, but this guy's telling Jeremiah, yeah, you guys should have not been doing that. You know, it's almost like sometimes I think the world looks at the church today and thinks, wow, you guys shouldn't be doing that stuff. And the church is like, yeah, we can do whatever we want. Liberty in Christ. And the world looks, scratches their heads and wonders, what's wrong with you guys? One of the worst places for you to be is to try to be hip and cool with the world and mixing it up with sin, but trying to be a Christian and part of the church at the same time. That's a really hard place for a person to be. Um, and, and the world doesn't get you and the church doesn't know what to do with you. Uh, it's such a strange thing. Um, uh, don't be in that place. That's where the Jews were for, for a long time. And that's why in verse seven, it says, even the world said, man, you guys have sinned against your God, Jehovah. Um, interesting. Verse nine. 
For lo, I will raise and cause to come against Babylon an assembly of great nations, Medes and the Persians and others as well, but from the North country, they shall set themselves in array against her. From thence she shall be taken. Their arrows shall be as mighty ex, uh, uh, expert man. None shall return in vain. And Chaldea shall be a spoil. And uh, all that spoil her shall be satis uh, satisfied, saith the Lord. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, O destroyers of mine heritage, because you are grown fat as a heifer at grass, and bellow as bulls. Did you see why the Lord punished Babylon? It's not that they, that they were the sword that was used to punish Israel. The reason the Lord punished the Babylonians because, verse 11, you were glad, because you rejoiced, O ye destroyers of my heritage. It's not that they just did it, they did it with joy. We love killing Jews. That's, that was their attitude. And so the Lord said, that's why you're going down. You see, that, that's the secret. God says, I did use you, Babylon, but you did it arrogantly and you thought the Jews were less than you. You know, um, how does this apply to us? I don't know. It is kind of an interesting question, but one thing I do have to say um, is I've seen this in a microcosm of parenting. When we punish our kids, um, God punished his kids here and he used Babylon as the paddle. And when Babylon got, a, Babylon got a sick joy out of paddling the Jews, God says, oh, by the way, you're toast too. Sometimes I wonder if parents get a joy out of disciplining their kids and they think it's funny. And, and I know we can be light and sort of lighthearted about it, but I think we should be really careful about that. I see mothers talking about how their son did this or their daughter did that, and they talk lightly. And the son's just standing there, yeah, little Johnny, I can't believe he was picking his chicken pox and eating the scabs. What a, you know, and the, the, the kid's standing there and the, the embarrassed and the, and, you know, it's like, huh, what? No, mom cover, love covers a multitude of sins. I think that when we expose our kids' sins and get sort of a joy out of spanking them, yeah, I gave them a good old whooping behind the woodshed. Like, I don't know that that's really the heart of the Lord at all. Does it, does, it, does it grieve the heart of God when he has to punish his children? I think so. And I think we should be careful about this one. That's just one small application, but God uses people and he also uses nations to discipline his children. But boy, if those nations are doing that, they better have the right attitude. By the way, I think God used the United States of America to discipline a nation. What nation? Germany. You know, Hitler was headed down a horrible path. Um, and um, the Lord used the United States and other nations um, to come in and intervene uh, as God's, I think God punished you know, the German and the Nazi Third Reich and all that because they were doing horrible things to God's people, the Jews. So we got to be that tool used by God. But I think that that's partially why the Lord has blessed this nation uh, because we stood for that. And, and, and in a sense, we're part of the rescuing of God's people, the Jews. God used us. But be careful, America. It's our pride that's gonna be our downfall. Um, and that's what you see here with Babylon. Well, it goes on, verse 12, your mother shall be sore confounded. She that bear you shall be ashamed. Behold, the hindermost of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land, and a desert. Because of the wrath of the Lord, it shall not be inhabited, but it shall be wholly desolate. Everyone that goeth by Babylon shall be astonished and hiss at her plagues. Um, 
Babylon stood uh, empty for centuries until Nebuchadnezzar, um, you know, uh, the, what is he? Nebuchadnezzar, the, is it the fifth? I forget, but it was Saddam Hussein who called himself Nebuchadnezzar. Did you know that? And Saddam Hussein was trying to rebuild Babylon and he put a bunch of millions of dollars into building Babylon up again. But then a little thing happened where he got hung uh, and uh, that stopped the building of Babylon. So largely today, Babylon, which is like, I don't know, 50 kilometers from Baghdad, it still sits and there's some unfinished buildings that are there and it's not really much of a place. Um, But someday it could be that it'll be rebuilt. Um, But in the book of Revelation, it'll be utterly destroyed. So some people see this utter desolation of Babylon being fully fulfilled uh, during the tribulation period, just for you eschatology buffs. But verse 14, um, but it says, put yourselves in array against Babylon round about all ye that bend the bow and shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she hath sinned against the Lord. Shout against her round about, she hath given her hand, her fountains are fallen, her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance upon her as she hath done unto her. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him that handleth the sickle in the time of harvest for fear of the oppressing sword. They shall turn away everyone his people and they shall flee everyone to his own land. Israel is scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. The king of Assyria devoured him. And, um, and last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, have broken his bones. So the Assyrians first came and crushed the northern 10 tribes. Then, then uh, Nebuchadnezzar came and took the last tribes there in the south. Therefore, verse 18, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will punish the king of Babylon in his land as I have punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation and shall feed on Carmel and Bashan and his soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, saith the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for and there shall be none and the sins of Judah and they shall not be found for I will pardon them whom I reserve. Uh, Has this happened yet where the Jews are back in Israel and there's no more sin found in Israel? No, it hasn't happened yet. Israel has returned, the Jews have returned back to the land, but there's still sin there. So we believe verse 20 is speaking of the millennial kingdom when the Jews will be there in Israel and the Lord rules and reigns. And that's when Daniel chapter nine tells us that the Lord will make an end of iniquity and an end of sin. That's the millennial kingdom. But speaking of Babylon again, verse 21, go up against the land of Merataim, even against the inhabitants of Pekod, Waste and utterly destroy them, saith the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded thee. Interesting names of places. Um, these two places are kind of Southern Babylon where the Tigris and the Euphrates River um, uh, enters into the Persian Gulf. That's these regions. But the, the names are interesting. Merataim means double rebellion. And Pekod means to punish. Um, and the Lord says, I'm gonna wipe that out. It, it just seems like the Lord's saying, I'm gonna wipe out the arrogancy of the Babylonian empire. 22, a sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction. How is the hammer of the whole earth cut asunder and broken? How has Babylon become a desolation among nations? I have laid a snare for thee and thou art also taken, O Babylon, and thou wast not aware thou art found 
and also caught because thou hast striven against the Lord. That's another thing that we have to chalk up against Babylon for their destruction, striving against the Lord. Verse 25, the Lord hath opened his armory and hath brought forth the weapons in his indignation for this is the work of the Lord God of hosts of the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the utmost border, open her storehouses, cast her up as heaps and destroy her utterly. Let nothing be uh, of her left. Say all her bullocks, let them go down to the slaughter, woe unto them, for the day is come in the time of their visitation. The voice of them that flee and escape out of the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of, the, of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon. All ye that bend the bow, camp against it round about. Let none thereof escape. Recompense her according to her work, according to all that she hath done, do unto her. For she hath been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Strike three. Not only were they rejoicing at the destruction of Israel and the Jews, um, and um, that they were, um, you know, defiant against the Lord, but also um, proud. They were also prideful against the Holy One of Israel. Verse 30, therefore shall her young men fall in the streets and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, saith the Lord. Behold, I am against thee, O thou most proud, saith the Lord God of hosts, for the day is come, thy day is come, the time that I will visit thee. And the most proud shall stumble and fall and none shall raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities and it shall devour him all around about. Babylon gets a delineation that not even the other nations got. Not only were they prideful, verse 29 at the end, but they were most prideful, verse 31 and 32 says that they are most proud, interestingly enough. Verse 33, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel and the children of Judah were oppressed together and all that took them captives held them fast. They refused to let them go. Their redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. I, I don't wanna race through this um, last section and I think we've left enough for ourselves to do one more week. What do you say? Uh, one more week of Jeremiah uh, and then we'll be done with this book. So we'll pick it up from there next week. Lord, how thankful I am for uh, just the truth that we find in your word, Lord. And one of the things we're, we really marvel at is how you do see the nations. You see all of us as individuals, everything's naked and open before you, Lord, your word tells us as individuals, but even the nations, Lord, you know exactly what's going on with the nations and you hold nations accountable. Lord, with that in mind, we do um, pray for forgiveness for the nation that we are a part of. We see ourselves almost as looking in a mirror sometimes at some of these nations of pridefulness, trusting in our uncertain riches, rejoicing at the downfall of other nations when we should be compassionate. Lord, we see ourselves thinking of our glory days, but Lord, I pray that we would not be prideful. I pray that somehow, we don't know what our future holds fully here in America, Lord, but you know all things, but we pray that there would be a repentance in our land and a revival. We pray, Lord, that there'd just be a a new enlightenment uh, where people would see that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And 
Lord, that, that more and more people might come to know you. And I pray that your church would be more effective, not just talking about fluffy things that don't really matter, but Lord, that we would talk about the weightier matters of truth and salvation, sin and judgment and wrath, but mercy and compassion and redemption and the glory of heaven and our future with you. Lord, help us to talk about things that matter and not get bogged down in the small things. But Lord, I pray that you'd just wake us up as a nation. We see that our schools have continued to spiral downward on what we teach our children. We see, Lord, where we've embraced things that your word calls an abomination and sinful. We have embraced as something to be celebrated. We see, Lord, where once we, say, we used to say that in God we trust. But Lord, we can't really say that honestly. We confess and we put our trust in so many things that are not trustworthy. Forgive us as a nation. As a church, Lord, may we shine brightly. I pray that you'd shine through us, Lord. As you are the light of the world, may your sun shine brightly in us. And like the word says, I pray that our lights would shine before all men. Um, help us not to compromise in our faith. Help us to be steadfast and immovable and unshakable. Bless your people tonight. Reward everybody who's been going through this book, Lord, with us, I pray, with just understanding and application and blessing. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.